Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, I think that's page 1036. If everybody would turn there. Uh, I want to show you uh, my very favorite board game. Does this look familiar to you? Uh, this is called Shoots and Ladders, and we'll show a picture of this on the screen in just a moment. Shoots and Ladders. Uh, it's an ancient game. It uh, goes back uh, to uh, the nation of India many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, in fact. It was used to teach uh, the principle of karma to, uh, to children, uh, karma and kama, uh, the, uh, the principles of destiny and desire. Uh, but it uh, was brought over to America, and it was called uh, Snakes and Ladders. Are you familiar with that, Snakes and Ladders? If you know this game is Snakes and Ladders, that means you're old. I'm <laughs> I just have to speak the truth. Since 1943, it's been called Shoots and Ladders, and uh, it has been a popular game for, for many, many years. And it's my very favorite, uh, my very favorite board game. Uh, so it's a, it's a very complex game. It requires a very sophisticated strategy. So those of you in the back know what this is. So it, it requires a very sophisticated strategy. And so I want to give you some tips and tell you a little bit about shoots and ladders. Now, are you even familiar with this? Some of you know what I'm talking about, shoots and ladders. And so what you do is you start here at square one and uh, you spin a spinner, you roll some dice, and, and so that will tell you how many spaces you can move. The goal is to get from the bottom to the top, and if you can get from one to 100 first, then you win the game. Now, the, the difficulty is that occasionally uh, you will encounter a shoot. Now, if you get to a chute, it's going to drop you down several levels and you have to start over in a sense uh, because the chute will shoot you down. It will, it, it's a slide and you'll fall right down. In fact, there are some pictures here to, just to help kids understand what will take you further down the list. In fact, uh, here, if you pull a cat's tail on number 98, that'll drop you down two levels. And so don't pull a cat's tail. If you get all the way up here, the worst one is if you get up here to square 87, that means you stole cookies from your mom's cookie jar, and that will drop you almost all the way back to the beginning. And so you want to avoid the shoots, but you want to find the ladders. Because if you land on a ladder, that means you get to instantly bump higher up the board. In fact, uh, if you get here to, um, I don't know, number nine is, uh, is a ladder. If you land there, there's a little picture of a boy mowing the lawn. And that will um, instantly bring you up to square 31 and you're a lot closer to the top. And so the, the goal of the game, you got this? The goal of the game is to avoid the shoots and find the ladders so that you can get higher and higher until you win the game. Now, when that's a game, that's a lot of fun. But when that's how a person lives his life, that's a terrible way to live. But most people are, are using this strategy of shoots and ladders to somehow gain acceptance from the Lord. 
The, the way most people and the way most religions work, in fact, is, the, the, is to get to God in order to be pleasing to God, to be accepted by God, then what you've got to do is you've got to do enough good things in life. You've got to find enough ladders to lift you up and you've got to avoid some bad things. You have to avoid enough shoots that would take you down. And then, it, then at the end of this life, if you've done enough good stuff, if you have merited, if you have earned God's favor, then you're going to be a winner. And if you have failed to do that, if you've not done enough good stuff, if you've not climbed enough ladders, if you've fallen down too many chutes, then you'll be rejected by God. Many people today are playing the game of chutes and ladders. Well, I, I want you to know that the Bible never tells us that that's how you get close to the Lord. And so I, what I want us to do today is to look into scripture and see what the Bible says we must do to be right with the Lord. Now, I want us to go back in history a little bit, about 500 years. Last week, we started a series of messages where we're looking back a few hundred years into history at an important event called the Reformation. And we're seeing how they struggled with what are the foundations of our faith. And we're seeing how that plays really into life today and how we can rediscover the foundations of our faith. And so let me tell you about uh, life in the church 500 years ago today. In those days, the theology of the church was the theology of shoots and ladders. What the church believed and what the church taught was that if you were going to be right with God, if you were going to be forgiven, if you were going to be saved, it would come first because of the sacrifice of Christ and the grace of God that God would save you by his grace, but you also had to do certain things in order to completely earn and merit the forgiveness and the salvation of God. And so they would have said that, that to be right with God required the work of Christ, but that was not enough. It also required you doing certain things, uh, finding certain ladders, avoiding certain shoots, so that you could, in part, earn your relationship with God. People have been playing shoots and ladders with God for many, many years. Well, last week we talked about uh, a man whose name is Martin Luther, uh, who helped us understand the first tenet of the faith, sola scriptura, that, that truth comes from scripture alone. And so we learned a little bit about him last week, and I, I want to talk about him some more this morning because I, I think he helps us to, uh, to understand really how it is that we can have a right relationship with God, and it gives us some context before we just dive into Scripture and nail down the answer. And so Martin Luther, he discovered from Scripture that God never expects us to play the game of shoots and ladders with him that we are accepted by God because of something very different than whether or not we earn it by finding the ladders and avoiding the shoots. And so let me tell you a little of his history. Uh, Martin Luther was a college student and he was studying to be a lawyer when one day he found himself in a terrible thunderstorm. And in this thunderstorm, he thought he was going to die. And so in the midst of this uh, terror, he prays to God, really he prayed to Saint Anne. In those days they were taught to pray to saints and that's all he knew, but, but, but he prayed to God through Saint Anne 
uh, that, if, that if somehow God would save him from this thunderstorm, that he would become a monk. Pardon me. And so God, in fact, did save him from the thunderstorm. And uh, true to his word, Martin Luther gave up his legal profession and decided to become a monk. Well, when, when Martin Luther enrolled in the monastery, his first concern was to be certain that he was right with God. He feared that somehow he would come up short in, in his relationship with, with, with the Lord. And so he began to do things to try to earn, pardon me, earn his way uh, to, uh, to the Lord. He began to fast. He would fast for days and days and days, uh, trying to somehow uh, impress God and earn a relationship with God. He would whip himself in punishment for his sins to somehow impress God. He would sleep on the stone floor night after night to somehow impress God. And then he would go into the confessional and he would spend upwards of six hours a day confessing his sins, fearful that he might leave out just one sin and that that would somehow disqualify him from God's favor and God's love. Now the church taught all of those things. And so he did everything the church told him to do in order to have some assurance that he was right with God. But at the end of that, he simply said, who knows if I have done enough to impress the Lord. And he was, um, he was filled with fear and he was depressed. He was discouraged. In the midst of that, <coughs> pardon me, in the midst of that, he was given an assignment uh, to teach the Bible to some college students. And so he began to study the scriptures. Now, why he, it didn't occur to him when he was going through this uh, anguish to study the scripture and find the answer, I don't know. They looked at things differently in those days. But he begins to study the scripture in order to teach. The first passage, the first book that he was assigned was, was, were the Psalms. And so in 1514, he began to teach the Psalms. And he got to Psalm 22, verse 1, uh, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a, it's a prophecy of what Jesus would say on the cross. And in fact, Jesus did say that on the cross. And, and when Martin Luther read those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His first thought was, that's exactly how I feel. I feel separated from God. I feel that God has forsaken me because of my sin. Martin Luther knew he wasn't a perfect man, and, and, and he felt separated from God because of that. But he wondered, why would Jesus ever need to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther said, I know why I feel that way, but Jesus was sinless. Why would Jesus ever feel that way? And it began to dawn on Martin Luther uh, something that uh, is just wonderful news. And it took him a few years to figure it out, but it began to dawn on him that perhaps when Jesus was on the cross, that Jesus was somehow in Martin Luther's place. That when Jesus was on the cross, he was in my place and in your place. And that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was talking about being forsaken because of our sins. And so Martin Luther began to think about those things. In 1515, he taught through the book of Romans. And he got to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where the Bible talks about the good news of salvation, the good news of the gospel. And it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed to us. 
He, he said that, that he always thought of the righteousness of God as the judgment of God, but here he, he learned that there's good news that God's righteousness is somehow just given to us. And, and, it, and it furthered his thinking that, that, that Christ must somehow have died in his place and so that he could have the righteousness of Christ given to him. Well, then in 1516, he taught uh, through the book of Galatians. And he came to Galatians 2, 21, which says, if righteousness comes through the law, if we have a right standing with God because of the law, because, of, because we have kept the rules, he says, then Christ died for nothing, is what the scripture says. And then it dawned on Martin Luther. And he recognized that we're not saved by the sacrifice of Christ plus the things that we do. It's not by Jesus plus shoots and ladders. He recognized that it was by the, the grace of God alone. Sola gratia is the way it was said. That, that we are saved by God's grace alone. Not God's grace plus baptism. Not God's grace plus the Ten Commandments. Not God's grace plus going to church. Not God's grace plus not doing this sin. But just we are saved by the grace of God alone. And his life uh, radically changed at that point. Now, we're going to pick back up with this story in a moment. But let me tell you what was happening in Rome about the same time. Now, I know this is a lot of history. Just hang with me. I, I, think, it'll, I think it'll mean something to you in a moment. I know history just, you know, just people just, just gloss over for a minute. But, but hang with me. Let me tell you what was happening in Rome. In Rome, Pope Leo was in the process of expanding St. Peter's Basilica. And a great church there and, and a church that still stands today, beautiful church. But he was expanding that. He didn't have enough money. In fact, the church in those days was absolutely broke. And so he got the idea that he would sell indulgences to raise money for the church. Now, let me tell you what an indulgence is. This was a, a sad yet brilliant idea. And an indulgence was basically forgiveness based on the work of another person. You see, the church taught that you were forgiven by the blood of Christ plus doing good things. And then the church believed that there were some saints, particularly Mary, the mother of Jesus, who had done so much good, they did more than they needed to do. And they had extra. And so there was this extra credit. I mean, there was this work that had been done. There were these these merits that had been earned by saints of old who had lived such exemplary lives, who had sacrificed in such, in such great ways that there was this extra grace that was available. And the Pope said that he was a dispenser of that grace. And so for the right amount of money, the Pope could dip into the treasury of merit, it was called. He could dip into this extra credit that had been earned, and he could give you some of the, some of the credit that had been earned by the saints of old. And so people would buy these indulgences. And, and if you had sinned greatly, or, or, you, or you were concerned that you had not done enough good things to outweigh your bad, then you could just buy some of the good works of some ancient saint 
And, and that then would be enough to cover your sins. You would buy an indulgence for sin. Now, not only did they sell indulgences for you, but you could also buy indulgences for your uh, dead loved ones. And so they, they believed that if you were in Christ and you were partially forgiven and you died, that you would go to purgatory where you would spend hundreds of years perhaps, thousands of years maybe, paying off, purging uh, the sin payment that had not been covered by the blood of Christ and by your good deeds. And so they would say you could buy an indulgence to cover your sins, but you could also buy an indulgence to cover your deceased mom's sins and therefore thereby uh, spring her from purgatory. And so they began to raise a lot of money, some just from cash payments, some by selling relics. Now a relic was just a religious object that, uh, that had some, some special meaning. And so you could buy one of these relics or you could just pay to look at one of these relics and by owning or looking at one of these relics, you would also receive forgiveness. Now, that's an indulgence, but it really got worse. They began to get into multi-level marketing. Now, I'm not making this up. I know this sounds strange, but they began to franchise the sale of indulgences. And here's how they did it. They would then sell religious positions. Like if you wanted to be a bishop for some geographic area in Europe, you would buy that position from the church in Rome. Maybe it's a million dollars. So you pay a million dollars and you buy that position from the Pope. And so now the Pope has money to invest in the Basilica. And uh, now you are bishop over this, um, over some area. You, you have franchise rights for that area. Now that allowed you then to sell indulgences in that area. And so now, I mean, it costs you a million dollars to buy it, but now you can turn around and you can sell indulgences. You can get your money back and you can make a profit. Now, if, if you're going to be a businessman like this, what do you need? You need a salesman. And so they found these guys that were just really good speakers, people who could really work up people's emotions, sort of the ancient equivalent of a tele-evangelist who would go around and who would get people to, uh, to buy these indulgences. Say, you know, you've done terrible things and you're going to spend, spend thousands of years in purgatory unless you buy this indulgence. Or your poor mom, you remember when she cussed at the dog one day and she's in purgatory because of that and you need to give in order to spring her from purgatory. And in fact, they had some, some neat sayings. Now, these sayings were in German, uh, and they rhymed in, rhymed in German, but many of them rhyme in English as well. I'll read a couple of them. One of the things they would say is, as soon as, as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Or another one was, the moment your money thumps in the chest, one of your relatives will find heavenly rest. Well, this infuriated Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in the city of Wittenberg, and this was one of the main places that people would go and pay to see relics. Uh, the church at Wittenberg had over 19,000 relics that for a fee, you could come and you could look at these and you would, 
get forgiveness for you and for your mother. Uh, some of the relics that they had, uh, they had supposedly, of course, a vial of Mary's milk right there in the church of Wittenberg. And for a fee, you could look at it. And um, I can't imagine, but you would um, you'd be forgiven. They had an actual corpse that Herod had killed, uh, you know, a thousand years ago. And they, uh, they still had that. They didn't say what it smelled like. Uh, they had straw from hay, which Jesus was laid when he was a baby. Now, of course, none of these things were real, but uh, people thought they were real. People were desperate. People would pay to view these. And uh, Wittenberg saw this every day. He saw people coming into the church and paying to uh, receive forgiveness. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Luther began to ask some questions. The, the first question he asked is, if the Pope had this treasury of merit, if he had all of this credit of forgiveness that he could give out, why didn't he just give it to everybody? Why didn't he just save everybody by just giving it away? Why does he have to sell it? And then secondly, he, he asked the more important question, why is the death of Christ not sufficient to pay the penalty of all sin? Why do we need to look at some relic or depend upon the good works of some ancient saint? And so Martin Luther wrote down 95 complaints uh, about the practice of indulgences, the sale of indulgences. And we call that the 95 Theses. And then it was in the month of October, 1517, so uh, almost 500 years ago, next month. Uh, they were coming up on the month of November. Now, the month of November was a, was a significant month in the practice of the selling of indulgences because this was the month that uh, people were encouraged to pray for the dead to get them out of purgatory. And so all that month, the emphasis was to pray for the dead. And so the first day of that month is called All Saints Day, or in Latin, All Hallows Day. And so Martin Luther, on the eve of All Hallows Day, on October 31st, All Hallows Eve, or you know it as Halloween, he goes to the door of the chapel and he nails these 95 complaints to the door. And that's where everything began to change. And what these 95 complaints, in a sense, said is sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. Not grace plus, not shoots and ladders, not, not be good and, and keep the Ten Commandments and God will be impressed. But we are saved by grace alone. Now our question this morning is, was Martin Luther right? How are we saved? What is the truth? And I want us to look to the Bible and find the answer. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to begin reading in, well, I want to read the first verse, and then we'll skip down a little bit. Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, he's talking about the condition of all people. All people have sinned, and so the, the condition of all people is that we are dead, that we have no spiritual life in us we are dead because of our sins. See, one of the reasons why people get this, um, 
get salvation wrong is they don't understand how serious our sins are. They think that we're sick because of our sins and we need to be healthier, that we're weak because of our sins and we need to be strengthened. But the Bible says, no, we are dead. We are hopelessly dead because of our sins. The Bible says our sins have so separated us from God that they have, they have eliminated all life from us. We can't improve ourselves. You can't turn over a new leaf. When you're dead, you're dead, Right? I mean, you don't go into the, into the graveyard and, you, and, and, and give people a motivational speech. You know, you need to get up. You don't just need to lay there. You need to have some energy about you. You need to do better. No, dead people are dead. And so he says here that because of our sins, we are dead. We need to understand how significant that is, how serious that is. If we were to go to the emergency room today, just down the street, we would find all kinds of life-saving equipment. We would find um, a defibrillator to, to uh, restart your heart. We would find a respirator to give you breath. We would find all kinds of medicines to counteract poisons uh, in your body. We would find all kinds of things to, to save your life. If you're very sick, that's where you need to go. But if we were to go to the mortuary this morning, we wouldn't find any of those things, right? There's no life-saving equipment at the mortuary because you are dead. And what he says here in verse 1 is that we are dead because of our sins. There's no hope for us other than that God might bring us to life again. Now, let's skip down to verse 4. And I want us to see what, what God is willing to do, what God has done. It says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. So there's that word grace. We're going to see it over and over in these few verses. We were dead, but we have been saved. We have been made alive by grace. It says he also raised us up with him and seated us with, with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no man can boast or brag. Now I'm going to be very simple this morning. Because if you make grace complicated, you've missed the point. Grace is a simple, powerful thing. Let me tell you from these verses what we know about how amazing grace is. Number one, grace is life-giving. Grace is life-giving. Now, look back at verse 4 and 5. He says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive. Now, that means that we were dead, but now we have been made alive. And how does he do this? He has made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Now, how does the grace of God make a dead person be alive? Well, it does this by exchange. And I want you to understand this, because this is, this is what Martin Luther discovered or rediscovered. This is something that people had known for a thousand years and had just been forgotten. But, but here's what he had discovered. We are made alive by an exchange. 
See, we're guilty of sin and we deserve death. We are dead in our sins. Jesus, of course, was never guilty of sin. Jesus is God. He's holy, pure, and righteous. But Jesus came and he died. Even though he didn't deserve death, Jesus came and he died and then he was resurrected. Now, I am in his death. When Jesus died, he died not for his sins, but he died for my sins. He died for your sins. And so there's an exchange. I deserve to die, but Jesus died for me. There was an exchange. The guilt of my sin was put on Jesus. And there was an exchange. Jesus died for me. And then when Jesus was resurrected, his life, his new life is now in me. See, he died for my sins. He rose to give me newness of life. The, the reason our, that grace makes us alive is because there's an exchange. Now, there's a verse in Galatians that meant a lot to Martin Luther and helped him understand this. And I want to just draw your attention to Galatians 2.20. And I don't think I have this on the screen. Or, or maybe I do. There it is. Look at this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ... That means I died with Christ. So when Christ died, I was there. He died for me. I am crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know why, you know why I'm alive today? Because, because in me is, is found the, the sacrifice of Christ, the purity of Christ, the, the love of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. See, Christ lived that life, but now that life is lived in me. When God sees me, he doesn't see a man guilty of, uh, you know, of, of dishonesty and a man guilty of, of, of lust and a man guilty of taking things that, that were not his and a man guilty of saying hurtful things about people. No, that's not how God sees me or you if you're in Christ. God sees in me a man who has lived a perfect, righteous life that sacrificed constantly because because I am in Christ and Christ did those things. Now, if you look back at verse five, the first, uh, the first words in my translation anyway are made us alive, uh, made us alive. There's, a, uh, there's one uh, Greek word behind those three words, made us alive. And it's, it's about that long and you're not interested in what it is. But it begins with three letters, at least in the English, it begins with three letters, S-Y-N, sin, where we get uh, the word synchronize or to sync things up. You know, if we were to synchronize our watches, that means we, we set them all so that they're, they're the same. What he's saying here is that I have been synchronized with Christ. I mean... I mean my, my, my life has been synchronized with Christ so that when he died, he paid for my sins. And when he rose from the grave, his life became my life. Now, let, let, me, let me illustrate it by telling you an, an, a preposterous, impossible story. All right? And, and this, is, this is a crazy story. I know that's, that's going to be the point. Let's imagine that there are... Uh, there was a man in the hospital uh, down, down the street, and uh, he was a middle-aged man, and he uh, was suffering from heart failure. 
he had uh, not taken care of himself. He had abused drugs. He had uh, lived in a way that had just damaged and really destroyed and weakened his heart. And so the doctors come in and they say, I'm sorry, sir, you just have a few hours, maybe a few days to live. There's nothing we can do. Your, your heart is just too weak and it can't be repaired. And so he's waiting on his death in, in just uh, a matter of hours or days. So let's imagine in our preposterous story that the president hears about it. Not a particular president, this isn't a political story, but the president hears about the plight of this man. And let's say the president has a young son who has a healthy heart. And so the president and the son get on Air Force One and they fly here to Nacogdoches and they go in the hospital and the president introduces himself and his son and he says to the doctors, I understand that this man's heart is so weak that he is about to die. I want you to know that here stands my son with a healthy heart. I want you to transplant the heart of my son into that man and save his life. I want you to transfer the life from my son to that man. And I want you to transfer the death of that man to my son. Now, that's a preposterous story because nobody would ever give up the heart of their son. And it's preposterous because no doctor would ever perform that surgery. But that's exactly the point. The grace of God is preposterous. It's unreasonable. It is amazing. It is wonderful that Jesus would substitute his death for ours so that we might be resurrected from the dead and have life in Christ. Grace is life giving. It's what the Bible teaches us. Now, let me show you something else about grace very quickly. Grace is immeasurable. And I want you to look back at verse seven. It's immeasurable. It says, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. Now, the word immeasurable, your, might, your Bible might say surpassing. That's a good word as well. Uh, in the Greek, it is uh, hyperbolo, which doesn't mean anything to you, perhaps. Uh, at least the last part, balo, that's a Greek word that means to throw, like to throw a ball. But hyper, that might mean something to you. That means, you know, in, in some great distance, with some great power, as far as you can go. I know a lot of you are Star Wars fans, and so this brought up a Star Wars image for me as I was studying this word. Uh, do you know what the Millennium Falcon is? And they would put it in what kind of drive? Some of you know? No, you don't. But they would put it in hyperdrive. And that meant it would go really fast and really far. And so that's what he's talking about here. He, he, he's talking about, when it says that God's, God's grace is immeasurable, it's hyperbolo. It means it is, the edges are thrown so far that, uh, that there's no limit to them. You know, when you think about immeasurable, I like that word. To measure something, how, how do you measure something? To measure something, you have to be able to get to the edges of it. If I were going to measure the top of this uh, uh, stand here, this pulpit here, I, I, would, I would take a measuring tape and I would put one end at, one part of the measuring tape right here at, the, at this end, this limit, and I would stretch it across to the other limit. To measure something, you have to be able to get to the end of it, right? You can't measure something that you can't get to the end of it. Well, what he means when he says that God's grace is immeasurable, 
is that it has no end. It has no limit. There's nowhere you can go and see the end, the limit of God's grace. It is immeasurable. It is without limit. You can't find the edge. God's grace has no restriction to it. Isn't that amazing? There's no limit. Now, this is something that uh, people have struggled with and, and people still struggle with. I, I think of a couple of biblical illustrations. One is found in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Just listen to this verse. It says, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, so the apostle Paul, he shows up in Jerusalem. It says, he tried to join the disciples. So Paul tried to get with Peter and James and all the disciples. It says, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, what was going on? Why were the disciples afraid of Paul? Well, because Paul was a man who was notorious for hunting down and killing Christians. That was his job before he became to know Christ. Before he came to know Christ, his job was to hunt down Christians and have them arrested. And many of them were were killed because of their faith. If you would have asked the Christians of that day, who is the worst sinner in the world? They would have said, it's Paul. Uh, they would have called him Saul, uh, but they would have said, he is the worst sinner in the world. And so now they hear this rumor that God has forgiven Paul and he is now a Christian. And you know what they thought? There's no way. That Paul's sin is so bad. That is an impossible thing. And so they were scared of him. They didn't even want to meet with him. They didn't want to get anywhere near him because they thought it's just impossible. Now, if you're thinking that you know somebody who has sinned so badly that it would be impossible for them to come to know the Lord, I'm telling you, you're wrong. What you've done is you have limited God's grace, but the Bible says that his grace is immeasurable. It has no limit. And if you're thinking that that person is you, that you could never be perfectly right with God because of your sins or because of how many times you have have gone to God and disappointed him and gone back to God and disappointed him. If you think it's you, I'm telling you, you're wrong because God's grace is immeasurable. There's no limit. The other illustration I think of is a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20. Very quickly, he talked about a landowner that needed people to come work in his, uh, on his farm. And so he, he hired some people at the beginning of the day and said, this is, I'll pay you a, a fair wage, told them what it was. If you'll work today. And so those people came and they worked. And then he needed some more workers. So he went back in the middle of the day and got some more. And then he got some more later in the day. And then he got some just one hour before the day was to be over. And so then it, the day's over and, and he pays uh, the, the ones who had worked all day. He paid them what he told them he would pay them. And, um, and they were pleased with that until he brings the guys up who had, um, who had only worked an hour. And he pays them the same amount. And the people who had worked all day were furious. And they said, this, this, you can't do that. This isn't fair. To which the Landover said, exactly, it's not fair. And, and Jesus' point is, God's not fair. If God were fair, none of us would be, would be saved. If God were fair, fair, no sin would be forgiven. If God were fair, none of us could be right with God. But God's grace is just so amazing. And so the Roman church in the 16th century, they, they measured God's grace. 
They taught that the grace of God would partially cover your sins, but not all the way. That there were some things that were outside of God's grace. And we measure God's grace when we think that there are some things that we do or some things that we've done that are outside of God's forgiveness and grace. We have measured his grace, but the Bible says it is immeasurable. Now, the third thing I want you to see is that God's grace is exclusive. It's exclusive. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift not from work so that no one can boast. I want you to see that three times, he says the same thing over and over and over, three times. He says that, that God's grace is not from yourself. That means you didn't, you didn't come up with your salvation. He says it's God's gift. A gift is something that you don't pay for, right? If somebody gives you a gift and then gives you a bill, it wasn't a gift. So he says it's, it doesn't come from yourself. It is a gift. And then he says it is not from works, what he's saying is that God's grace is exclusive. It's not, we're not saved by God's grace plus something else, plus baptism, plus church membership, plus giving a lot of money, plus um, following the Ten Commandments. He says we're saved by God's grace. You can take no credit for the salvation that God has bestowed upon you. If you let's say that your neighbor is uh, that you're saved, but your neighbor is some uh, dirty, rotten slime of the earth center. Okay. I mean, don't raise your hand, but, uh, I mean, you live next to that guy, but you're saved. Now, why are you saved and he's not saved? Why are you saved and he's not saved? Now, if you think it's because you're a better person than him, if you think it's because you're smarter than him, if you think it's because you're gooder than him, I mean, however you want to say it, then what you're saying is that you were saved by grace plus what, what you did. And the Bible says no. That we are saved by the exclusive, we are saved exclusively by the grace of God. Now, why is that important to us? Well, you go back 500 years and you think about these indulgences, and it's just hard for me to believe. And I've been reading about it, especially in the last few weeks, just in preparation for this. And hard for me to wrap my mind around. The fact that people would pay their hard-earned money to go and look at a thousand-year-old vial of milk, thinking that that would bring forgiveness. Why would somebody do that? Why, how could somebody be so foolish, so gullible? Well, I'll tell you why. Listen, because people are desperate to be right with God. They are so desperate. They'll do all kinds of things. They'll make all kinds of promises if somehow they can know that they're right with God. People will say, I'll clean my life up. I'll turn over a new leaf. I'll stop my addiction. I'll break off a relationship. People are always trying to be right with God. But the Bible says that the only way is to receive God's grace. G-R-A-C-E. I was taught when I was young, that stands for God's riches, G-R, at Christ's expense. We are saved when we surrender to him and we say, I don't bring anything to the table, but I accept the goodness of God and the sacrifice of Jesus bestowed upon me and I surrender my life to you. I am saved by the grace of God alone. 
Now, just with your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment, here's how I want to challenge you today. Let's stop playing shoots and ladders with God. Now, there are two categories of people in here that are doing that. There's some of you, and you, you've never been made right with God. But you, I mean, you've been trying. Maybe that's why you came to church this morning. You thought there'd be a ladder. I mean, God will be impressed if I go to church. And you need to today, once for all, quit trying to earn your way into God's good pleasure. And you need to accept what Christ has done for you and just surrender to him. And, and, and today's just the day that you need to do that. You need to quit playing, quit trying to impress God. You need to trust what Christ has done. In a moment, we'll stand and sing, and I'll be standing here. And if, if you'd like to talk with me or somebody else about, about how you can draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to quit trying to impress the Lord, and I'm going to accept his grace and mercy, I encourage you to come. Let's, let's talk to you. Let's pray with you. Let us help you know the sweet grace, the amazing grace of Christ. But listen, there's another group of people here. You, you do know Christ, but you're still playing shoots and ladders. I mean, you come to church some weeks and you're just on top of the world because you think you've hit a few ladders this week. I mean, you, you've shared your faith. You were faithful to give your tithe. You've, you've, done some, you've done some good things. And so you feel like I'm on top of the world. And, and, and then the, 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 next, uh, the next week you come, or, or maybe you don't come because you're, you're frustrated and you've hit a few shoots and you've done some things you shouldn't have done and you've not been faithful. And, and, and your, your walk with God is so up and down and up and down because some weeks you think you impress him and some weeks you think you disappoint him. Listen, quit playing shoots and ladders. You, you, you hadn't hit any ladders that have impressed God. I mean, nothing you've done this last week impressed God. No, no, nothing you've done this last week earned any of more of God's favor because God could not love you more than he already does. The reason God loves you is because of what Christ did, not because of what you do. And there's nothing you could do that separates you from God as a Christian. Because your, your glue with God is Jesus anyway. It's not how you did last week. Now, certainly, there, we need to live godly lives. Absolutely, we need to live godly lives. But let's get off this roller coaster. Let's quit playing this game of shoots and ladders. And let us just sing and praise the Lord for his goodness and his grace is unreasonable and unfair and amazing as it is. God, thank you for loving me like you do. Father, help us to understand that it is by grace alone, it is by grace alone that we have a relationship with you and help us to, to just live in that, to marvel in that, to wonder in that, that um, the goodness of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.